In recent years, they called Ireland the Celtic Tiger for its suddenly robust economy. Nowadays, people are starting to call it the Celtic Kitten. Things are slowing down. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Even though it's St. Patrick's Day, the party's slowing down a bit in Ireland. Ireland used to be what the European Union called its top success story. So we're checking in with Irish tour guide Stephen McPhillamy on the Times in Ireland. Stephen will explain how the once skyrocketing cost of living is now coming back down to earth, making his country a bit more affordable for its citizens and for visitors. The crunch that Ireland's going through at the moment is only temporary. I think we have our house in order. Everything's going to be all right. Stephen joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves, along with the co-author of my Ireland guidebook, Pat O'Connor. We'll take your calls and get an update on today's Ireland. Stay with us as we see what the enduring magic of the Emerald Isle looks like for travelers in the year ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. Their Advantage program can help you earn miles toward your next vacation. Details are at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. One of my favorite countries anywhere in the world is Ireland because I have the sensation that I'm understanding a foreign language. Everybody loves to talk. There's lots to talk about. And people are as friendly as you can imagine. Today, we're going to Ireland. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Patrick O'Connor, who co-authors my guidebook on Ireland. And Stephen McPhillamy joins us from Northern Ireland. And Stephen is a tour guide and knows Ireland from top to bottom because it's his homeland. Patrick and Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Thanks, Rick. Rick. First, I want to talk with Stephen McPhillamy because the Irish I know have what we call the gift of gab. And that's not just a cliche from movies or something. I mean, it really is rooted in the culture. You've got these... uh, a Shanaki, right? Yeah, that's Shanaki is the ancient storyteller. You know, they'd be very respected in our culture. Back in the, the medieval period, like the Shanaki had a real privileged position in our society. He and the bard and the poet. And so th- even today, some people still would be professional Shanakis, like they continue on the tradition and they have stories. These stories could go on for hours, however. You know, some of them be an hour or two hours long. It actually does survive till this day because I can imagine it in an old day when there was the oral tradition that kept history alive from generation to generation. That's probably the origin of this, right? Right, and it was always just like the Shanachie would go around Ireland traveling and his way of getting accommodation would be to tell a story for the host family. And he'd sit in front of the big fireplace and he'd go on for an hour of this amazing story. And some of these would be stories that that he was ad-libbing, he'd be making up as he'd go along. But most of them were actually stories that had been passed to him from another Shanachie and had been passed on. So it was a great oral tradition. Sadly, these days, with modern technology and modern society and our, our sort of globalised approach to everything, we're losing a lot of that. You know, most most young Irish people, if you said to them, would you be able to tell us a story, wouldn't have a clue where to start, I would think. But there's a sizable minority there. Who pride themselves. Oh, love it. And, this, and, and have this natural flair for it. And once they get going, then the, the majority who wouldn't have a clue how to do it realize they do have a natural flair for story because they've grown up with it and they just don't know they have You know, I'd just love to be in the far west of Ireland and get involved in these conversations. I've been with Irish people talking and the, and the sun goes down and gets dark and nobody even remembers to turn on the lights. We're sitting in the living room and it's dark. I mean, the conversation is so engrossing. Yeah. And I get caught. I've been hitchhiking and I finally get to where I'm going to go, but the conversation's so good. I forget where I'm going to go. I just stay in the car with a guy. I mean, that's what it's all about. And it is really refreshing, actually, isn't it, to have that sense of you going into a bar. And, and as we say, when we've said it before on this show, like in Ireland, there's there's no such thing as stranger, just friends you've not met. And yeah. it really is that when you go into a bar. I've been in bars all over Europe and nobody really wants to talk True. much. So. It's tough for me. Yeah. Uh, and I've worked with Pat O'Connor working on our guidebooks. And sometimes I just want to go out for a quick dinner in the bar because that's where you get the pub grub and go back to the bed and breakfast and work on the book. And, and Pat, you get people that just uh, refuse to let you be business like they want to yeah. get you going on a conversation. No, that's really true. In Ireland, one of the things that I love is that they always have time for conversation. And that gift of gab, I know it, it sounds like a cliche, but it truly comes from ancient origins because before Christianity, the Celtic culture was illiterate, meaning they never wrote down any of their laws or their traditions. It doesn't mean they were ignorant. It simply means they had that oral tradition so that still survives tradition. today. Yeah. Now, my hunch is that the Gaelic language, which I don't understand except for uh, cheers and thank you and hello or something, it has a romantic love of conversation structure that it gives the way people think and communicate. And then they speak English, but they have an advantage because structural sort of foundation of the way Irish people communicate relates more to the Gaelic, which would be more charming. I don't know. That's just my hunch, because I'm wondering why in Ireland is the conversation so endearing? I think that's definitely a factor. 
a lot of times in Gaelic you translate literally from Gaelic to English and it, it'll sound wrong in you know proper English but it would sound exactly what you th- would expect to That's have a it, conversation yeah. with a farmer out in the in the west of Ireland on the side of a, of a road with a little stone wall and a load of sheep. So that's definitely a factor. And then it combines with just that ancient Celtic, as Pat said, that Celtic oral tradition, which has always always sort of lingered on and, and we've cherished it now and fostered it now in the, so in the modern age. Stephen McPhillamy, you're, you're just a master storyteller as far as I'm concerned. And I, when I'm with you and your friends, it's almost sport. It's fun. It's challenging. It's stimulating. It's sharing. And you, you've got these stories and you tell them in a way that really explains things and it takes you back. Pat, when we're thinking about communicating with the Irish, of course you can go to the castles and there's plenty of those and the museums, but you want to go into the pubs and you want to connect with people. As an American traveling on Ireland, uh, how do you connect so well? You know, one of my favorite things is to ask them directions. I mean, even if you know where you're going sometimes, you see an interesting character you just love to chat with, you want to start up a conversation, ask them directions. And it's not simply the practical, logical, take a left here, take a right there. There's usually stories along the way or some colors to to their directions, and it's sometimes my most memorable experiences. And also, when you go into a pub, remember, I, I believe if you sit at the table, you're you're not as inviting, but if you sit at the bar, actually, that's where you'll meet people. That's right. That's right. Um, it, basically, if you stand at the bar, you are willing to talk to people. You're accessible. If you're sitting at a table, it means that you're waiting for someone or you have friends. Uh, it's not like it's... Uh, so you're more likely to meet a, a colorful a, old Irish guy if you sit on a stool at the bar. That's right. The bar. That's right. That's right. right. It's sort of a nonverbal you, signal. Now, also, I like to have certain topics to talk about, sports, or mm-hmm. I like to talk about Pete when I'm in Ireland, because yeah, I find yeah. that romantic. Yeah, yeah. Any, any sports insights into Ireland? I know they've got, what, hurling. Hurling or cricket, right? That's the big choice, or how does that well, work? Well, in Irish sport, the two biggest are hurling, which is a well over 2,000-year-old sport from uh, the Celtic days, that they have these long Irish hurley sticks that are made of ash, and that's a very fast, very rugged, very um, at times dangerous sport. And then there's Irish football, which looks a little bit like soccer, but it's not because they can run with the ball for three or four steps. And I personally prefer hurling. So hurling, if you want to see the classic Irish sporting event with lots of enthusiasm in the fans mm-hmm. in, in the stadium, go to a hurling match or an Irish football. That's right. That's right. And different parts of Ireland have different specialties, too. Uh, Kerry is known for its football prowess. Kilkenny is known for its hurling. So their specialties. Stephen, well. what's your take on on the Irishness of the sports? Right. Well, as Pat said, there you see, you've only got two indigenous sports: Gaelic football and hurling. Every other sport that we have has been an import, generally from England. So you'll have cricket a bit. It wouldn't be that big a game in Ireland. In the north, it's played a a little bit, not not overly, but. It, it would be pretty much 99% perceived as a Protestant game. Yeah, a good an, a, a good, a good Catholic yeah. Irish boy doesn't grow up wanting to be a cricket. No, no. my player. father actually played it growing up. It was his sport of choice. He was an Irish, is an Irish Catholic. But it, and sadly, that, you know, we shouldn't really be talking a sport in that way. But the reality in Ireland is that's often the way it is. But um, cricket is a, a bit of a minority sport, although. We have a decent national team. Quite a lot of them are from Australia and South Africa, though, that type of thing. Uh, hmm. Gaelic football, if you wanted to see an Irish game, yeah, definitely. Hurling's the big one. We've got a good rugby uh, tradition, too. A lot of, uh, Is rugby. there one sport that both the Protestants and the Catholics embrace equally? Well, uh, sadly, not really. Uh, we have a we have a, a rugby team, the national yeah. team. They're generally Protestants and Catholics together. But when they stand for the national anthem before the game, you see them about 10 years ago... Uh, one of the Protestant players, I overheard him at university once saying he couldn't sing the national anthem. He actually couldn't even breathe for the two minutes of the anthem in case people back up in Belfast saw him breathing and they would think he was singing the Irish national anthem. So now they've scrapped the national anthem. We're the only rugby team in the world that doesn't sing our national anthem. And they've invented this new song called Ireland's Call. Now, it's a beautiful song. It's all about us standing together and, and you know, la yeah. But we're the only rugby team in the world who does not play our national anthem before the game. Because of this deep-seated uh, troubles, which they've made huge uh, progress in, in winning peace. But still, when you're in Dublin, one of my favorite museums is the... Uh, the GAA Gaelic, Museum. The GAA, yeah, Gaelic yeah, Athletic Association, Association. Because of its connection with the uh, Civil War and the, and, the, and, right. and the fight for independence. Yeah, you see, hurling's always been there. And then uh, Gaelic football was always there, but there was never any rules to it, you know, in the 1800s. Like, if one village went to play the next village, it was literally the whole village played the other crowd, you know. You'd have deaths and everything and the the feuds that would go on for years. So you'd have hundreds of people and the game would go on for hours. So they gave it rules in 1884, the Gaelic Athletic Association. But you see, Rick, it's a nationalist movement as well. Like, the Gaelic Athletic Association was formed 
to cherish and promote Irish culture, but it was also there to give young Irishmen an alternative to English games like okay. rugby and cricket. To keep and the soccer. Irish uh, culture strong. Yeah, definitely. It's like when uh, England wouldn't let Scottish people wear their kilts or something like this. They had to have an alternative. Or uh, Franco wouldn't let the Spaniards wave their own flag, so they waved their their soccer flag. Uh, yeah, up in Barcelona. The, the, yeah, that's right. Different um, ways yeah. that feisty cultures um, yeah, exactly. managed to keep their culture strong in spite of their colonial overlords. Right. Now then, 1998, or when the Good Friday Agreement was signed up north, the peace agreement, the British government helped subsidize an ice hockey team. They wanted to give us a sport, you know, a fresh agenda, like a new sport that nobody could say, that's Catholic or that's Protestant or any of that sort of nonsense. Ironically, they chose one of the most aggressive sports I've ever seen. But we have a good, a really good hockey team now in Belfast called the Belfast Giants. So the British government subsidized the creation of the Belfast hockey team to give the people a sport that didn't have roots in the sectarian struggles. Yes, and it's a professional franchise. Now it's on its own two feet, and I think it's doing fairly well. They were British ice hockey champions. There's no other teams in Ireland to play, so they play in the British League. The right. uh, problem is nearly every player is from Canada, of course. We don't really have that many public ice rinks, so I don't know if we're going to have any local players at any time no way in the to, near future. to raise the players. Steve from Vinton, Louisiana, emails us, and Steve uh, writes, Ireland is known for their horses, among other things. I'd like to find the best place to rent a horse and experience a beautiful Irish countryside on horseback. Right. Well, the first thing you probably want to do there is go to a website called discoverireland.ie. This one will definitely work. It's the Tourist Board's official website. Um, you go in there and click under horses or equestrian and there's a, lo- a load of, of real options there. There's stables, good quality stables in practically every locality. Uh, Pat, in your research, have you run across uh, you know people renting a horse for a day and so on? Yeah, um, in one of our favorite towns, Dingle, on the west coast of Kerry, uh, in the southwest of Ireland, uh, the Mountain Man Shop is sort of the clearinghouse of hiking and bicycling and outdoor sport, including Horseback riding. They ride along Inch Bay, don't they? That's right. It's a dramatic postcard shot. That's right. Crescent white sand beach with horses Mm. splashing through the surf. And they also do an option of going up into the hills, too. They have a nice trail up there. That's right. I did that once. So if you like horses, you can splice that into your Irish experience. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Patrick O'Connor, co author of my Ireland book, and Stephen McPhillamy, who comes to us from Ireland to give us an insight into that beautiful Emerald Island. We'll get to more of your calls and emails in a moment as we explore Ireland with Stephen McPhillamy and Pat O'Connor today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines. New vacation options in Latin America plus getaways in the U.S., Europe, and the Caribbean are at aavacations.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Ever since those Irish monks were credited with saving Western civilization in the Dark Ages, Ireland's contribution to world culture has far outweighed its humble size. We'll take your calls at 877-333-RICK in a moment to hear your questions and stories about traveling in Ireland. 
It's an update on Irish culture and tips for visiting the Emerald Isle today on Travel with Rick Steves. Stephen, Ireland is different because it was never conquered by Rome. Why, why does that matter? I mean, I know that that has a lasting impact on the way Ireland just looks at the world and Irish culture today. Well, the Romans called us Hibernia, which they say is the Latin for meaning land of eternal winter. So maybe that's why they never came near us. Uh, maybe they feared there are Celtic warriors, but maybe it was the weather too, I'm not sure. But the fact that they didn't come to us meant that we developed culturally in a different cycle to the rest of Europe. We didn't have central government. We didn't have powerful leadership. We didn't have one big emperor who told us everything. You know, we had hundreds of little emperors all around the country. And that sort of culture where we always liked to rebel and we developed a a sort of distaste for central authority. We, you know, if they were to tell us what to do, we'd often say, well, no, God, we're not going to do that. And, yeah. and I think just culturally, socially, and every other way, we developed differently from the rest of Europe, which was under central Roman so, control. Yeah, so Roman effectively ruled the empire, and you were beyond that. Eventually, the church came in and had a bigger impact, I think. I would, you see, the fact that Rome didn't come near us the Roman Empire also meant that Roman Christianity didn't come near us, you know, a, a, a sort of a Episcopal church where you had a bishop and, and a, a hierarchy. We had Celtic Christianity, which at the time suited us. And it was very individualistic. Men, women as well would go off and set up monasteries and they would answer to no one, only God and themselves. There'd be no bishop or archbishop or a cardinal or a pope or anyone to tell them what to do. They'd go off into the countryside, build a little monastery. Some of them were hermits. Some of them had attracted crowds of thousands to come and live with them. So a different type of worship developed based on the person. And if we think about these early Christian uh, hermit monks and so on, I mean, if you lived in the Holy Land, you'd go to the desert to be an isolated monk. And in the west of Europe, there was no desert, but there was places just as desolate, and monks would find these, these rocks out in the middle of the Atlantic. Absolutely. And, and that uh, was a thousand years ago. That was a thousand so years ago. They would ago. establish these tiny monastic communities just to live simply in the most rugged environment, and, and we can visit those places today. And the other thing then, too, of course, is when the Roman Empire eventually collapsed, sort of Christianity, in essence, collapsed with it throughout Europe, and then, thankfully, you still had Ireland there as a Christian settlement to go back into Europe and that's re-Christianize it. it. So that's how it works. So Christianity in the civilized world fell with Rome, and you've got this parallel system of Christian spirituality in Ireland providing leadership when Europe was in the darkest depths of the Dark Ages. Yeah, and when the Dark Ages are on, there's no one big powerful bishop in Ireland to say to all the monks, we're going to go back to Europe and re-Christianize them, or we're not. Men and women decided to go themselves. You know, you had Irish monks going as far as Switzerland and Italy and up into parts of Germany and down into Spain. And these men just went of their own accord. There was no one to tell them to and go. And they were motivated by their faith to Christianize people whose salvation they cared about, unlike conquistadors who were Christianizing Latin America just to have an economic colony or yeah. something. Well, we have no trace or records of anyone coming back with any treasures. Like right. Many of these men were, were killed over there. And, and you also have the fact that Ireland is the most literate corner of Europe, what are the, uh, the Isle of Saints and Scholars, during the darkest depths of the Dark Ages when almost nobody could read and write, emperors in Europe needed Irish monks to be their scribes. Exactly. Charlemagne imported Irish monks. Right. Yeah. Eventually, Ireland is finally conquered and assimilated into a central government really by London, by England, right? By the English, yeah, in the 12th century. See, that whole period, there's a very interesting book. It's a worldwide bestseller. It's called How the Irish Saved Civilization. Very modest title. Yes, uh, <laughs> Thomas Cahill. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah. Pat, when somebody's going to Ireland, how can they best prepare to understand all of this, what is quite complicated but mm-hmm. really rewarding to know if you're going to be visiting Ireland? Well, gosh, um, one of my very favorite things to do is to take a walking tour from a local guide. For example, in Dublin, there's a, a great walking tour outfit called Historical Insights. They just do a terrific job, not only educating people, but doing it in an entertaining way and showing the passion that the Irish people truly have for their history and their culture. There are more great guides in Ireland from a traveler's point of view than anywhere else. And they speak English and they love to talk and they've got a great story to tell. Yeah. And you're steep on the learning curve. I would say anywhere you go in Ireland, you can find guides. I'm Rick Steve. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Ireland. I'm joined by Pat O'Connor. Pat uh, co-authors the book I've written on Ireland. And Stephen McPhillamy, who's an Irish guide and uh, entrepreneur. Stephen runs a youth hostel up in uh, in Derry. And Stephen uh, is a tour guide all over Ireland. Uh, to learn more about Stephen McPhillamy, his website is irishexperience.ie. irishexperience.ie. Our telephone number is 877-333-RICK. Emily's on the phone in Utah. Emily, do you have a comment for Stephen or, or Patrick? 
Um, yes, I did. I was just going to say that my husband and I went to Ireland for our 10th anniversary last May, and we were on the Ring of Kerry, and we gotten off onto the very west side on the Skellig Ring. Mm. And when we were trying to make our way back to the Ring of Kerry, um, we took a wrong turn. And we ended up meeting a woman and her sheep, and she ended up talking with us, and we even ended up with a souvenir of some wool that had been snagged on our fence. And like you tell us, it was just one of the small, unexpected things that happened that made our day. It was like one of the most special parts of our trip. Oh. And it's because you made a wrong turn. Yes. You know, when it comes to the Ring of Kerry, which is the most touristed uh, driving loop in Ireland, I would say, I think your key is to make a wrong turn. Yes. Stephen? Yeah, yeah. get off the beaten track and see what's going on. Did you, did, you under, <laughs> did you understand her accent okay, Emily? You had no problems with the, the oh, lady's yeah. accent? Yeah, they have a nice brogue down there in Kerry. And tell me, Emily, could you see the Skellig Islands off the coast there? Yes, we could. Beautiful, uh, very dramatic islands that the monks uh, lived on for 500 years back in the Dark Ages. Mm. Well, I hope you have more experiences like that, Emily. Wherever you go... Make a wrong turn and grab a piece of uh, wool off of the fence, okay? <laughs> I will. Thanks for your call. <laughs> Monica's on the line from Lafayette, Colorado. Monica, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks. I have a question about the word Celtic, which we um, hear a lot connected with Ireland. But when I was traveling in Cornwall, I was very often reminded that Cornwall, too, is a Celtic country. And that was somewhat surprising to me. So I did some research and um, found that there's actually six Celtic countries. So and I'm what are curious. they? Oh, well, if I'm correct, it's Ireland, Scotland, Isle of Man, Cornwall, Brittany, and Wales. Exactly. I think she got oh. it. <laughs> and also a corner of northern Spain called Galicia. Galicia. Ah, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But the languages, are they the same? That is my question for you. Well, the languages you see are all originally the, the same. They are classed as Celtic languages. But then within that family of languages, for example, you have a language which is Gaelic, and the Gaelic only is the Scottish and the Irish. So I could sort of understand a bit of Scots Gaelic, as they call it, and they could understand me a bit. I couldn't understand a word of Welsh, to be honest, and, and I'm a Gaelic speaker. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the Manx language has died out now, which was the language in the Isle of Man. And the Breton language in northwestern France is making a bit of a comeback. Like the French didn't really like it for years. They, I think even Napoleon and de Gaulle and whatnot even would, would have banned it, you know, in the school. So it's coming back. And in Galicia, what's his name there? The, the dictator down in... Uh, Franco. Franco had banned... Um, yeah. He had banned Galician. Well, when I first started back. traveling in, in France, if a, a parent named their child a Celtic name in Brittany, that child would lose its French identity card. Right, they, they couldn't uh, be a, a full citizen if they uh, had a Celtic name. They were so uh, threatened. But to, to answer your question again, just that they are connected. A linguist would maybe see the connection, but a speaker of Breton wouldn't understand Irish. I think the Cornish language, I think I've read that that only has five speakers left. No, the, the last Cornish speaker died oh, about 100 years ago. Yeah, and oh, there's, there's, yeah. But it is a sad thing to see those languages in the Isle of Man and in Cornwall die. It's interesting to hear you say, Stephen, that the languages are actually making a comeback. It, it seems so impractical to have these small languages, but of course, if you speak these small languages, it's part of your cultural soul. I, I know that it's just a blessing for a Welshman to have his language, you know. So would you say that the Celtic languages are actually holding their own and even picking up speakers in any case? Well, I'd say holding their own is the word, you know. So it's a struggle, isn't it, in the uh, reality of the modern a world? struggle. In fairness, the Welsh are probably the best exponents. I mean, I go yeah. to Wales there and you see so many people speaking Welsh. They're enthusiastic about Oh, brilliant. And in Ireland, it's compulsory to learn the language, so therefore linguists say it'll always be alive. But only about 14% of us speak it on a daily basis, which is sort of strange, you know, because we're so patriotic and we love the language, but we don't really... Does the government spend money to keep the Gaelic alive in Ireland? Oh, yeah, they're investing very heavily on it. We have a minister, like, yeah. whose role is to look after the language, so... See, the Welsh have an, an advantage, actually, because that's the language they speak in heaven. Isn't it? <laughs> I haven't been. I haven't, oh, my Welsh I haven't friends, gone there yet. My, so. my Welsh yeah. friends tell me that's what they speak in heaven. So, Lord. you know, one other quick point about the language, Rick, is that at the time of the famine, as sad as it was, one of the side effects of the famine was that before the famine, the majority of the people in Ireland spoke Irish. Mm. After the famine, the people who had died and emigrated were the poorest who spoke Gaelic. And mm. after that, English was... That was the turning point. That's right. And unfortunately, if you wanted Irish, a job, and your job needs were probably more important than your uh, that's right. cultural loyalty. And if you spoke English, you're more likely to get a job in post family And Irish Ireland, was right? unfortunately looked at as a badge of ignorance in those days anyway. Yeah. And it's good that you said Celtic as well, not Celtic. 
often find <coughs> people make that easy mistake. People always ask, well, what's the difference in Celtic and Celtic? You know, in, in our Celtic languages, there's in Gaelic, for example, there's no K in the alphabet, so C makes the K sound. There you go. And the, the Greeks called us the, the Keltoi, K-E-L-T-O-I, and that's the Greek for savage barbarian, I think. So that's why we were called the Celts. But it's only Celtic, of, as you probably know, when it's sport, like Boston Celtics or the basketball team or Glasgow Celtic, the soccer team up in Scotland. So Monica, did you go into any uh, bar where you picked up some uh, Celtic to uh, toast people or anything like that? <laughs> well, I did learn that the name for uh, Cornwall is Kerno. That's right. I've often Kerno. seen that. In a, Probably all I remember. And, and Stephen, when you go into a bar, what are the most important Celtic words to know to endear yourself to the old Irish guy on the stool? Uh, Falch is a big one, F-A. F-A-I-L-T-E, Falcha means welcome. Falcha. Uh, you could uh, say uh, two words to say hello. You could say uh, Gia, Ditch, D-I-A, and then D-U-I-T. Now, Gia, D-I-A is the word for God, and Gia, Ditch, or Gia, Gitch, as some people pronounce it, uh, means God be on you. And the response to that is Gia, Mura, Gitch, which means God and Mary be back on you. <laughs> and in parts of Kerry, they say, Gia Mora August Padraig gets you, you get God Mary, and you get St. Patrick for a bonus. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, and Gorav Mahagat, what's that? Gorav Mahagat means uh, thank you. Thank you. All right. Hey, uh, Monica, Gorav Mahagat for your call. <laughs> thank you. Okay, happy nice. travels. Thank you. Bye-bye. Gerard in Bowie, Maryland, uh, emailed us, and uh, Gerard writes, I usually go to Ireland on an annual basis. Last time I was there... Uh, uh, with the influx of Eastern Europeans, you rarely meet the old-time bartenders and waitstaff from the from the old Barry Fitzgerald cloth who added so much to the trip. The Irish wit and humor is part of the appeal. I miss it. It's an interesting point. You've got a lot of immigrants uh, working in the bars now, and you might not find your, you know, clichetic old Irish guy pulling you the, the Guinness. Yeah, that that's that's kind of true. But in other ways, I think it's been really healthy that there's been this influence uh, or influx, I should say, of Polish and Eastern Europeans coming into Ireland. The attendance at church has gone up quite a bit. Poland is a Catholic nation that you know shares its Catholicism, obviously, with Ireland. Yeah, you know, you do miss the the old characters. In well, it's a, it's an interesting issue for you and me when we're researching our right. guidebook because I know when somebody goes to some small town in the west of Ireland, they'd like their bed and breakfast host to be Irish, right? And right. if they are Polish or Greek or Portuguese in the west of Ireland, or maybe they're just English people that moved over there to start a B&B, well, yeah. I don't want to be racist about it, but when I go to Ireland, I want to have my host to be some sweet old Irish lady. What do you think about that, Stephen? Well, it's like the big unspoken subject of Irish tourism. I mean, we've, there's been conferences organized that were about this subject, but they Tight yeah, you can't something talk else. about it, can I mean, you? It's, it's just, I mean, it's, it's the way of the world, I suppose. What do you do? You can't say, okay, we're closing the borders and you're not coming in because we want to see the tourists have a nice old Irish lady in the B&B. So, you know, it's, it's a reality and it's, we just got to deal with it. It's all, to, it all over Europe, you got gas uh, star biters and with affluence, you get uh, people from poorer countries doing the, the hard work. But our tourist board have gotten off the fence and have brought up the question, you see, if, if we don't provide that great welcome that we're famous for, then there's not much difference between us and a lot of other destinations. That's for you know, sure. I mean, if you come over to a hotel in Dublin and you meet Wojtek from Bratislava and he's just saying, here's your room. Okay, good, good luck, goodbye. And, and, and that's all you're getting. That's fine. If you go to Poland or, or Czech Republic or whatever in Slovakia, that, that's, that's fine there. But in Ireland, you're going with an expectation of ultra-friendliness. You know, this is the most friendly destination in the world. This is not the destination with the best beaches or the b biggest mountains or the best palaces or cathedrals. If you're not getting that, then that's, that's the alarm bells ringing for us and for yeah. me because it's my livelihood. So it's important we, we keep that. And it's important, too, that our immigrants who come in realize that that's what we're famous for, and they, therefore, have to live up to the part as well. And we have Mary on the line in Bend, Oregon. Mary, hi. Thanks for your call. Hi. Yeah, do you have a uh, thought or a comment for Stephen or Pat? Well, uh, I was in Ireland once for a wedding, and we did um, a few taverns around, you know, went to uh, Clare County and Dublin and, and uh, Dougal and a few places like that. But we were interested in going back and doing what a pub crawl um, tour. And I wanted to see if you knew anything about those. Yeah, the pub crawl tour is my favorite thing in Dublin, really. There's, there's two different pub crawl tours. One has a literary focus and the other has a music focus. 
and these guys meet at one pub, and you pay them 20 bucks or something like that, and then you go for three hours. You'll go to a series of pubs, and they'll give you a little cultural and historic background to the various pubs. You'll uh, sit with your group, and then if it's the literary pub crawl, they'll do some beautiful examples of um, Irish plays or comedy, and if it is the musical one, they'll demonstrate the instruments, and it gives you a nice sort of fun, social, uh, easygoing evening where you learn a lot about one angle of Irish history. Uh, Stephen and Pat, is the, the, the two tours I remember, mm-hmm. they're sort of the dominant way to get that organized pub crawl. That's right, that's right. And the musical pub crawl has also expanded into Kilkenny just last year, oh, good. Uh, which is very nice. Kilkenny is a smaller town, a little bit more intimate than Dublin. And, Sounds great. And yeah. there, are, there are companies then, too, that do all Ireland pub crawls, you know, that last for a week or maybe two weeks. You find them on oh, the internet. Oh, so in- they do on a tour bus? Ah, it's a tour bus. You find them on the internet. I think most of them are American based and they'll go over and, and do an Irish pub crawl. Now, between me and you, if you said to an Irish person, would you like to pay several thousand dollars to go on a pub crawl? They'd look at you and think you'd gone mad because they'd be saying to you, well, why don't you just hire a car yeah. and go and do it yourself and save the $2,000 and spend it in the pub? I mean, you re- you know, you'd have a far better experience because really everyone's right. going to welcome you anyway, regardless. You don't need someone to bring you to the pub. Just pay the locals and have them take you around. Or even, you, uh, don't you don't even just buy them a beer. Have, yeah, you don't even have to pay them <laughs> for free. Well, you couple, know, couple drinks. it is a funny thing because when you go to Ireland, there's no easier place in the world to have friends than in a pub. And I want to stress, you know, when I talk about this, some of my wife's family is all Irish. They, they kind of cringe at this image of Ireland as just all Guinness and pubs. But it's not alcohol abuse when you go to a pub unless you want it to be. I mean, you can go to a pub and have a 7-Up or a cranberry juice, and you're just right in there with the action. This is the neighborhood living room. This is where the whole family goes. Bring the dog, bring the kids, play some pool, throw some darts, tell some jokes, learn some Gaelic. It is a magical opportunity. And uh, as Stephen mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot of places with great castles and great museums, but there's no place that has the fun in the pubs with the people as Ireland. And the pub architecture is great. The connection with the town, the old timers are there. Cost you eight dollars for a nice. What does it cost for a pint of beer in Ireland? Now it's not cheap. But well, you know, if Dublin is pretty expensive. Yeah, but, but probably on average, yeah, it cost about four euros. It was kind of expensive. Yeah. So six but, bucks for your beer, but you got yourself a great evening for that. That's true. A lot yeah. of music. We, I did actually meet one of the old timers, uh, Mike Daly. He's the matchmaker. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Over in Cl- he's over in Liston uh, Varna, is he? Over oh, in he was. He's an older gentleman, and he had quite the twinkle in his eye. Oh. And I met him um, uh, up at the pub there, this little town by the Cliffs of Mohar. Aye, that's, that that sounds a, like Liston yeah, Barna. Good is for that you. Google? That's, that's uh, uh, Doolin. Doolin is the place famous Doolin, for music. that's what yes. it was. It was Doolin, yeah. Okay. And I met him there, and he was a tour group with him, but he was very interesting. Well, there's a lot of interesting people in pubs. A lot of famous people run pubs, too. They've done their hurling thing or their soccer career, and then they get a pub, and they just are a local hero. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Ireland. We're joined by Pat O'Connor and Stephen McPhillamy. Thanks for traveling with us. 877-333-7425 or radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, our topic is Ireland, and I'm joined by two great Irish guides. Pat O'Connor, who's an American that just loves Ireland and spent uh, decades leading groups around Ireland and now co-authors my guidebook to Ireland. And Stephen McPhillamy, who lives in the north of Ireland, leads groups all over Ireland. Stephen's a busy entrepreneur. He owns and runs a youth hostel in the north, and uh, his website is irishexperience.ie. You know, Stephen... We, for a long time, have been talking about the Irish Celtic tiger economy. And Ireland had the hottest economy. Ireland used to be a basket case. And suddenly, Ireland has a higher per capita income than England. And for the first time in history, Ireland is importing labor instead of exporting it. Now, things have gone a little sour, and the Celtic tiger is gone. It's gone, but not forgotten. But it's <laughs> definitely gone. I mean, we just... The Celtic we, we, kitten. Uh, it wouldn't even be a kitten. It's not purring at all anymore. It's just, it's amazing how quickly it just collapsed. For what the best part of a decade, maybe even more than that, we have been the most dynamic economy in the world. And we're known as the Irish economic miracle and the Celtic tiger. And we have more jobs than we know what to do with. Unemployment went down to around 1%. Now it shot back up to near 7 And what, 100,000 Polish people came over to work as immigrant laborers? 
oh, I, I think it was closer to 300,000. 300,000, yeah. so a tenth of yeah. your population suddenly is Polish guest workers. Yeah. I remember talking to Irish friends, they're talking about their Polish uh, labor like a new appliance. It was just That's amazing. Right. Yeah, yeah. And now a lot of the Polish are packing up and moving back are as they? quickly as they can get out of there. <laughs> was it a bubble? Well, Ireland has no natural resources. We don't have any oil and we don't have any coal. And we have no diamonds and there's no gold and there's there's not a lot there in terms of natural resources to make us a very wealthy and rich country. So a lot of the wealth was based on the fact that our property prices were going astronomically through the roof. So therefore, I think it probably was a bubble. For 10 years, I, I, I rode the Celtic Tiger like everyone else. I went along on the roller coaster. I mean, my parents growing up, we had hardly anything. We didn't know we were poor, of course, until we became rich and thought back, oh, how do we ever afford to live? But... For 10 years there in the 90s and uh, the early part of the 2000s, we were flying ahead. And then I decided I was going to buy myself a little property in uh, Dublin. So I went into the city centre one evening, myself and my partner, we went in and we had a look. And we looked at this little apartment and um, there was just a new development. And I said, OK, how much for this? There was no view out the window. There was nothing. You're looking at another apartment. You couldn't have swung a cat in the place. It was like the size of the studio here. And I said, how much? He said, 450,000 euro. And I was, I felt like saying, so that's $600,000 for a humble little yeah. no view condo. Not even in the centre of Dublin, like a wee bit outside the so city. So, what do you think? Oh, I, I, I you said, must have I thought this is a bubble. Well, By the end of this, you're going to have a long drop. I was going to, I, I wanted to look good in front of the girlfriend, so I didn't want to just start crying on the spot, you know? Like, <laughs> and I could see all these other young people all, all over the place, these salespeople, like, were sticking up signs saying sold, 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 sold. And I felt like shouting at everyone saying, what the hell are you buying? 450 grand for this? I mean, it's just, it was just ridiculous. And all our parents were becoming millionaires simply because the little properties that were probably really only worth 100,000, they all had the mortgages cleared off them decades ago. And because they're worth a million now, they were getting equity on them. And we were very reliant on the American economy, you see. And we have this thing in Ireland that we're very proud to be part of the European Union, but we're always asking ourselves, are we closer to Berlin or to Boston? And we've just probably realised now, maybe it's the Boston bit, because we signed over our interest rates. Now we're part of the European Union, we've joined the euro. We can't set our own interest rates anymore. Uh, Frankfurt and Strasbourg decides now, Brussels decides what we have to charge on our interest rates. So we don't really have much control over our economy. And when the American economy started to collapse and the, the big American multinationals started cutting back, then we started feeling the pinch. Like in Mexico, they say when America gets a cold, Mexico gets pneumonia. So you have the same sort of contagiousness with the economy. When our economy goes down, it affects Ireland. Yeah, We were reading about this credit crunch and this, uh, mm-hmm. this mortgage crisis here in America. And we you could start reading between the lines and you're starting to see a few economists starting to say, well, hold on here, buddy, it's on the way. And it's really hit now, you feel it. Then a social tsunami just hit us. Well, a huge employer in Ireland was software industry, wasn't it? Is that leaving? Where are the software uh, employees going? As we speak, it's downsizing rapidly and starting to leave. Uh, Dell announced 2,000 job losses in Limerick and they're going to Poland of all places. They're going to Poland. Mm, Interesting. We're the second biggest software producer in the world. I don't think that's going to last for much longer. Originally, Stephen McPhillamy, the membership in the EU was a good thing because Ireland was the poorest country, along with Greece and Portugal, I believe, and you were net receivers. So Germany and France would send you money to get you up to speed. So they did bring you up to speed, did they not? Membership of the European Union, I think, definitely has helped Ireland. There's no doubt about that. And if we had played our cards a bit more properly, and, you know, held back a bit, I think we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. So you got caught up in the bubble and the speculation like everybody else. However, our our government are saying that within two years, we're going to be back to growth again. So, you know, we're playing it tight, we're we're being disciplined, and I think we're going to be all right. We just have to weather the storm. And uh, there's another very important point, and that is we Irish thrive in poverty and hardship. So maybe it's good for our country to go back to basics a little reminder. You've been there, that's for sure. Pat, from a tourism point of view, uh, Ireland is quite expensive. Is is this going to make it less expensive? The good news is when I was doing the book research most recently last summer, when I talked to B&B owners, they were saying that they were going to hold their prices. They were already seeing just a bit of dip in tourism. Prices are going to be probably the same, no raising in prices. And also the dollar's gotten a little stronger. The dollar strengthened 20% on the euro. We have Mike on the phone in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Hi, Mike. Thanks for your call. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I just um, had a quick question. I guess you've been talking about the economy already a little bit. I, um, I wanted to find out, you know, the socioeconomic impact when the Celtic Tiger was being built and all this EU money was flowing in 
and things were good, it seemed to me that the IRA and a lot of uh, the, the domestic violence and, and things had really died down. And I'm curious if there's any particular impact um, that you might see going forward from this now that the economy is slowing down, or if you think that in general things are going to just get back to normal and you're just going to have a slowdown without some of the other socio impact. Hmm. So if times get tough, is that going to bring back the troubles? No, I don't think so. I think to associate the violence in the North with poverty, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe stretching it a bit. In Northern Ireland, though, we put the past behind us. We're moving forward, the vast I, I really, majority of us. This is so exciting that it's, it's not just a, a truce. You guys are beyond the troubles now, I think. There's just a pragmatic, yeah. practical realization that, you know, this is old, old school. We can, we can be more constructive. On the other hand, in the old days, I had this strong sense in Northern Ireland the biggest fear was that if they had to join the republic, they'd be poor because Ireland used to be so relatively poor. Wasn't that a factor in the earlier days? Oh, yeah. You'd often hear terms like the banana republic. And the other one was, of course, the adjective would be the, the priest-ridden banana republic that they didn't want to join. Now, the priest-ridden I mean, banana republic. Yeah. Oh. There, there's, a, there's a tourist board marketing slogan. <laughs> there's, there's more bananas than priests there now in the republic. Like So, I mean... The, the, the crunch that Ireland's going through at the moment is only temporary. I think we have our house in order ultimately and everything's going to be all right. Travel and tourism is holding steady. So maybe that's important for us because there's a lot more jobs to be created there. Tourism's always going to keep growing and that's wonderful for the future. That's great. All right. Mike, thank th- much. thanks for your call. And Marilyn's on the line from Lando Lakes, Florida. Marilyn. Yes, I am planning a trip to Ireland this summer and heard that it's difficult to drive in some areas. So we wanted to get a rail pass and was wondering how accessible the bus system is from the train stations to get to smaller cities. Hmm. I'll let Pat answer that because he does this all the time. Yeah, the train system in Ireland is fine where it exists, but you have to keep in mind that a third of the population lives in the city of Dublin. So it's a sort of a hub-and-spoke system where everything feeds into Dublin. If you're over on the west coast in Limerick wanting to go north up to Galway and you want to do it by train, you've got to ricochet all the way across the country by train. So the train system just doesn't cover the country as well. So if you're not going to be renting a car, you need to factor in taking coaches of cross-country buses, basically, to get around. And wherever a train can't get you, a bus can. But the bus system does work well, doesn't it? The bus system works well. It's uh, cheaper than the trains, but it also kind of puts you into slow motion. I took a bus trip from Kenmare to Dingle a couple of years ago that took me three hours, and I could have driven that in a car in one. And the reason it took me so long is that I had to change buses uh, in Killarney as well as Tralee. So, yes, public transportation can get you around, but you have to factor in that it will take you longer to get around. And and if Ireland is dangerous by car, it's because the roads are narrow. You know, you just want to take it a little slower. The risk that travelers have is they're trying to get there too fast. Just take it easy. The roads are small. The distances are short. And it does make sense, I think, to rent a car. Do remember you can do it in the open jaws kind of way, and you can fly open jaws. So you could fly to the Kerry Airport or to Mm -hmm. Shannon Airport Mm -hmm. and then fly out of Dublin and pick up your car at one of those airports and drop it in Dublin. I think that would make sense. Stephen McPhillamy, any comments on cars versus buses or trains? We do have a, you know, reputation for being sort of crazy drivers in Ireland. But I think that's late at night, you know. During the day, I've never really seen too many problems. Just take it nice and easy. Stay away from the ditches. Keep it, what was it? Keep it between the ditches and you'll be grand. <laughs> yeah, keep it between the ditches and you'll be grand. That's good. I, well, I agree. After dark, the roads are narrow. You've got these hedges. You've got people that have been drinking, uh, possibly out late at night, and you've got you know potholes and so on. It's just it's more nerve-wracking after dark in Ireland, but during the day for a tourist getting from A to B, car is clearly the way to go. Well, I'm yeah. doing a home exchange, and they want to exchange cars. Ooh. Would you recommend that I let them use my car and I use theirs? Yeah, their car might be a bit smaller than what you'd be used to over here. Here, we, we, Our cars are often quite small. But and do you want an Irishman driving your car in America? Yes, well, my insurance. If there was no insurance issues, I think that would be a great idea. Great, because, very efficient. Yeah, hiring a car can be expensive enough, I think, over sure back home. And if you were getting the cars thrown in as part of the deal, sure, that would be a lot of fun. Okay. All right, Marilyn, thanks for your call. Thank you. Uh, Betty in Colorado Springs, Colorado, emails us at radio at com and asks, how can I cycle in Ireland independently? How does one avoid the 18-wheelers and the dump trucks on the narrow roads? If you're biking in Ireland, are you going to survive? 
Uh, oh, you're going to be grand, and you can hire a bike everywhere. Every town has got a bike option. There are uh, organised tours as well, which still have maintain a large degree of independence. One that I used to work for about five or six years ago was called Irish Cycling Safaris, and there was a great mix of about 15 people. You'd have Germans and you'd have Americans and everyone thrown in. And I suppose you'd want to choose roads that are not the highways because it's much more relaxing to take the small road. And also there's a great website called Eurocycle.com run by a husband and wife team named the Sullivans who happen to be from the Seattle area. And they have made a series of videos or DVDs where they are cycling and they have helmet cams and you can see where they're cycling. And it's not just pretty pictures. It's very technical, you know, how do I fix my chain when it's thrown off my bike and how do I pack my saddlebags? It's a very practical, hands-on sort of approach that I'd look into if I was going to be seriously bicycling around. What's that website? Eurocycle.com. We have Mike on the phone in Hartford, New York. Mike, thanks for your call. Yeah, hi. I was listening to the discussion of driving in Ireland. I've discovered that if you just keep the center line stripe by the driver's side door, it works anywhere. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh (laughs) Almost too simple. Thank you. Almost too simple. Uh, I've been to Ireland twice now, and my favorite part of it was the Aran Islands. I spent a couple of days on Inish Moor, as you did in your videos, and also a day on Inish Ear, which I really loved. A really tiny island. Uh, You can walk around the entire thing in an hour or two or three, and everyone was wonderful. And, of course, you get picked up by the horse cart who insists that where you're staying is on the other side of the island. And you really <laughs> need to go there by horse cart. <laughs> and then when you get there, you discover the other side of the island is only a five-minute walk <laughs> Way away. on the yeah. other side of the island, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I see a lot of nods here uh, when you mention the Aran Islands. Pat, what are your take on the Aran Islands? Well, Inishmore, of course, is the most well-known and the largest of the islands. But Inishir, I've been there as well, uh, Mike. Didn't quite have as much time as I would have liked there, but... Inish meaning island in Irish, and Ear meaning the eastern of the three islands, and Inish Moor meaning the biggest of the three islands. I'd love to spend more time on Inish Ear. You can do it as a day trip from Doolin very easily uh, and spend just a few hours there if you don't have a lot of time. We kind of feel that Inish Moor has the most to offer with Dunangus, a uh, World Cultural Heritage UNESCO site, uh, Ring Fort there on the cliffs, and the pub scene and so on is also a lot of fun in Kilronan on Inish Moor. I found it was especially nice staying overnight because uh, once the last ferry leaves, you have the entire island to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, Stephen, what's your thought on the Aran Islands? I think they're just absolutely brilliant. Uh, someday in Ireland, I'd love to become Minister for Tourism, and if I ever do, I'm going to make them a tax-free haven. I think it's so important that we have those islands that people can visit and see a traditional way of life, that they should all be living tax-free. So I'm going to do my best to help them. It's just, just brilliant. You go out there and you can hear people speak Irish, as a first language and the music and I was over there one night too and there was step dancing going on like traditional folk dancing outside and everyone could join and it wasn't river dance stuff it was oh, yeah. like American square dancing mm. just brilliant night and the archaeology and as you say there when the, when the ferry goes and all the tourists have more or less gone just he, walking around the place is just fantastic it's, it's the real traditional Irish culture I mean it's got tourism of course but boy it's the real thing and especially you spend the night in so many cases that are tourist traps when you spend the night all of the commercialism takes off on the last ferry and it's just you hanging out in the pubs with the local uh, people. And it's not some sort of remote island full of characters staring at you, like the Wicker Man or something. I mean, they're all well-traveled people. They've been there. Like yeah. myself and Pat, when we go there, we often use a minibus driver called Tomas O'Toole. Yeah. Tomas spent three or four years on a United States Navy destroyer down in the South Pacific. That's he, right. He went off and joined the U.S. Navy, seen the world. You know, and he comes back to the Iron Islands, and it's just a brilliant group of people out there. I don't know if this group is still playing, but the high school used to put on a show of dance, a river dance kind of show. Ragus. Ragus. And they were so mesmerizing and riveting, and I could care less about, what's his name, Michael Flatley. I was there in a little community Uh. doing their traditional thing for their visitors. It was so homey, and they were so proud. And yeah. I just felt, I felt I was able to connect with that community by going yeah. to that little uh, show-and-tell concert. Yeah, it's a very refreshing place, all right. Mike, thanks for your call. Thank you. Now, Stephen McPhillamy, you were raised from a Catholic family in the north of Ireland, where the dominant religion is Protestant. As a kid, I understand you could, by visual little clues, identify who's Protestant and who's Catholic. Is that true? Well, we are supposed to, by the age of 12, have 27 different ways officially of telling a Catholic or Protestant. Let's say you're talking to someone, first thing you'd, you'd wonder about is his name. You know, if your name is uh, Sean Murphy, you're 99.9% Catholic because it's an Irish name. If your name is uh, Victor Montgomery, perhaps, or, you know, you have a more Anglo or a Scottish type name, you know, you're not going to be going off to Mass on a Sunday, so you'd be a Protestant then. 
sadly as well, our education system is divided in Northern Ireland. So all you have to do is ask someone what school he went to. And if someone says, I went to St. Mary's, well, bingo, you've got what they are. And if someone went off to Her Majesty's high school, I mean, it's, you know, we have a, we have a Protestant system and a state system, more or less. You can tell by the school he went to, the sport they play, sometimes the colours they wear. You know, if someone's wearing an English rugby shirt, like they're going to be a Protestant. If they're wearing an Irish shirt, they're Catholic. You also can tell, of course... We sadly look at these things in Northern Ireland just instinctively. You look to see if someone's wearing a blank cross or a cross with a crucifix, because the crucifix will indicate Catholic, of course. And then there's always the old story of the guy who didn't want to be either. He was an atheist, and they said to him, well, are you a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist? So there's sort of eternal damnation. There's no escape. You have to be one or the other, even if you don't want to be. And now in Northern Ireland, when we apply for a job, you see, uh, used to be very discriminatory against Catholics, We, I would believe. And uh, that would be our argument. And, and to sort of try and stop that now, you have to fill in a form. And in this form, there's boxes. And the box says, I am a member of the Roman Catholic community. I am a member of the Protestant community. And if you don't tick one of these boxes, your application will be null and void. It's to try and stop discrimination and to try and reverse it. But a lot of people would stand up and say, you know, these days, I don't want to be typecast. I don't want to be a Catholic. I don't want to be a Protestant. Give me another box. So now there's boxes. And, and this is as true as God saying, I am a Roman Catholic, I am a member of the Protestant community. Then you have box three saying, I am perceived to be a member of the Roman Catholic community. I am perceived to be a member of the Protestant community. Like the British government in Northern Ireland doesn't really care what you are. They just want to know what you're perceived to be. You know? So perception wow. is everything, rightly or wrongly, in Northern Ireland. In spite of all that heritage, I think the good news is the troubles are essentially over. Yeah, sadly, we still have some religious animosity, and it wasn't all religious either. It'll be cultural baggage, but there's not going to be people taking up arms against each other. There's a constructive moving ahead to find ways to live better together. Yeah. And the bad news is the Celtic tiger is dead, rest in peace. Well, if I had a choice now of having a Celtic tiger and being super rich or having no Celtic tiger and having peace and harmony between the two peoples in our country, I'll go for peace and harmony any day. That's something to be thankful for right now. Stephen McPhillamy, Patrick O'Connor, thank you very much for taking us to Ireland. Cheers, Rick. Karamila Mahagat. Thanks, Rick. Now they say the Celtic tiger in my hometown brings jewels and crowns, picks you up off the ground. But the Celtic tiger does two things. It brings you good luck or it eats you up for supper. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Happy travels. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.